Second Corinthians chapter 2, and I've printed the text out there in the handout. We'll just read the first four verses together here. It's also up on the screens in the auditorium. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I made, make you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad, but the same who is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. I put a title on this lesson today, this section especially. I said, let's not be sad. Paul's talking about coming again to them and said in verse 1, I determined this with myself. I made a deal with me. I came to an agreement. I settled this with myself that although in the past I've come to you in heaviness, I wasn't going to come that way again. Now, I don't think he was with them in heaviness when he was there present in person in Corinth. He was doing what God wanted him to do. He stayed for at least a year and a half. Jesus appeared to him and told him he had much people in that city. We'll look at that in a bit here. But he had not gotten back in person again after that first period of many months. And he wanted to and hadn't been able to, but he had heard of them and from them and had written 1 Corinthians to them. And I think that's what he's referring to about coming to them in heaviness. 1 Corinthians is kind of heavy. You might even say heavy-handed. He dealt with them very straight, straightforward. So in my note under the reading that we just read, I've written, Paul made a determination that ruled his choices, that he would not come again to the Corinthians in heaviness. In heaviness. I, I've put up not a PowerPoint this morning in the auditorium, but instead this tool that I use called eSword, and I'm going to change the way it looks just a little bit here. It's just it's King James Bible, but I'm going to put the King James Plus version in front of you, and then you can see this. The numbers are from the Strong's Concordance Dictionary. The Strong's Concordance has every word of the King James Bible in it, so you can find out what language, Greek or Hebrew, what words lie behind the English words. And this is the Greek word number 3077. We'll put it right here. You don't need to know the Greek letters because there it is in English letters, lupe. And he even tells you how to pronounce it, lupe. This is the word heaviness, a primary word. The dictionary definition is sadness in the Strong's Dictionary after each definition. And sometimes the definitions run on for a ways you'll see a colon and then a dash, and after the dash are the several ways that the King James translators translate this word lupe in their Bible. So sadness is its definition according to the dictionary. There's another dictionary right here next to Strong's called Thayer's, another good old dictionary. It's the same word lupe. Thayer says the definition is sorrow, pain, grief, annoyance, affliction of person's mourning. It is a noun, a feminine gender noun, apparently a root word. So there's a, a little longer dictionary definition of it. 
There's one other tool right here next to the dictionaries called the KJC, which is the King James Concordance. And if you want to study a word, you pick the word out, and then you go to the KJC, and you'll not just see a definition, you'll see the 16, in this case, places that this word is translated in the King James Bible, the New Testament, 11 times it's translated sorrow, and there are the references right there. These are live if you're on a computer. You can actually scroll over them, and there you get the text of the passage. We could put it back in just the King James Version so all those extra numbers were not showing up, but here's the places where this word is used. Jesus said, I've, because I've said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. That's that word lupe. Another way it's translated is heaviness, as in 2 Corinthians 2 we just read. Also in Romans 9 too, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Two different words. I wonder what the other word is there. Let's look real quick over at Romans 9.2. Heaviness is lupe. Continual sorrow is another word in Greek that means sorrow. It's adune, grief, dejecting. So that was interesting. All right. We'll go back now to where we were, in, still in lupe here, looking at the other ways it's translated. It's translated grief in 2 Peter 2.19. This is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Peter uses this word lupe. So does Paul in Hebrews in 12.11. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. How many remember spankings in their youth? It was not a fun time, right? Grievous, that is that word lupe. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Sometimes it'll surprise you. It's translated grudgingly. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, talking about giving every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, not with heaviness, not with sorrow. That's that same word lupe, translated grudgingly. How interesting, no? So there's all the different places where this word comes in the Greek in the King James Bible in the New Testament. And you can look at the words behind the words and see how sometimes passages are related to others in, in ways that you might not have understood. I just used a tool up at the top of the page that let me back up. We had gone over to Romans 9, 2, and this little arrow to the left lets me back up to the place where we were before. And that's a convenient thing. So we're here just for now, I'm going to make the dictionary smaller because I want more Bible and less dictionary. We've read the first four verses. Paul talking about affliction and anguish and heart. When he wrote to 1 Corinthians, he, if you read it without knowing this, you might wonder how, how he's kind of mad, isn't he? But he says, no, I wasn't mad he said, out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you, with many tears. It, it really bothered Paul, but he had to write what he had to write. Now, in the, I'd like to go back just for a moment to Acts chapter 18 to see when Paul first physically visited with the Corinthians. 
This is right after he has been in Athens and has his message. This is page 1174 in your Schofield Bible, Acts 18, verse 1. And this is the first place where Paul has contact with the Corinthians that we know about probably actually the first time. He left Athens. Let me remind you, he was in Asia Minor in his second missionary journey and having some progress but wanted to go along, basically along the, the shore of the Black Sea, up north of the Asia Minor Peninsula, and God the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. And so he's over near the location of the ancient city of Tyre, actually, and, and he has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. I suspect that might have been Luke himself that he might have just met that day, because before that, Luke talks about them doing this, and after that next day, Luke writes the account, we did this and we did that. So I think Luke joined them there, and maybe Luke was the man from Macedonia, because otherwise I don't know how Paul would have recognized in a vision that he was a man from Macedonia, unless in visions they have good name tags. But I don't know that. In any case, he went from Asia Minor up to Philippi and had success there and a nice little jail term. And he went from Philippi on down the road to Thessalonica and then to Berea. And they were mad at him after he preached the gospel. The Jews roused the town up. And so his companions sent him by ship alone down to Athens. And in Athens, he was sharing the gospel. It's what he did in the marketplace. The philosophers of the Areopagus. But they sent him from Athens on to Corinth. They sent him on to Corinth. And this is where Acts chapter 18 picks up. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy. With his wife Priscilla, they came together. And then the parenthesis explains why they left Italy, because they had business going on there. But the emperor, Claudius, had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. He was mad at him, and Christians were Jews as far as the Romans were concerned, and came unto them. He went to Corinth, found Aquila and Priscilla, and Paul came to them. And verse 3 says, because he was of the same craft, he was a tent maker, he abode with them and worked. He wrought. He Let's get me, Let me borrow your needle and thread there. We're going to put some tents together. For by their occupation they were tent makers. That's a good, honest trade. They needed tents. For a, for a religious, Pharisaic Jews, it's got some issues because the tents were not made of canvas. What were they made of? Animal skins. Animal skins tend to come from dead animals, and handling dead things was a uh, thing under the Jewish law that would make you unclean as far as ceremonial unfitness for worship. So tent makers often had to take a day off before they a day to get cleaned up before they went on to the worship services. They were tent makers. So one of the things he's doing is making tents, providing his living. He did that. He was bivocational. And he reasoned, verse 4, in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. They let the Gentiles in to listen to. He'd go every Saturday, every Sabbath, that's the seventh day of the week, it's not Sunday, it's Saturday, 
That's when the Jews met between Friday evening and Saturday evening and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. He's persuasive. Isn't that... You ever wonder, it doesn't say he told them to do anything about their sins. When he's sharing the gospel, Paul is persuading. He's telling them the story of Jesus and helping them to understand, probably from the Old Testament, how that Jesus fulfilled so many of the prophecies and was the promised one of God. And he paid for sin. Sin was not an issue for having a relationship with God anymore. They couldn't go to the temple and offer for their sins because that was over with and done in Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, which he wrote sometime later, he said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe. He also said in the verses just before it, these Jewish people he had such a heart for, he said, they're ignorant of God's righteousness and they're going about to establish their own righteousness and they haven't submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So he's reasoning in the Sabbath, synagogue every Sabbath and persuades the Jews and the Greeks. And finally, some of his friends catch up with him. Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. That's where Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi were. Paul was pressed in the spirit. He got encouraged and emboldened by the arrival of his friends and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And they opposed, not him, they opposed themselves. When a person fights back against the truth of the gospel, they're not mad at you. They're hurting themselves. And blasphemed, I suppose, saying of Jesus things that were not worthy of Jesus, he shook his raiment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I'm clean. He has delivered the message. He has tried to persuade them. Like the watchman on the wall that's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, he said, if you see an enemy coming and you give the alarm, then you're, you're safe. But if you don't give the alarm, their blood will be on your hands. He says, I'm free, I'm clean, I gave you the warning from henceforth I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left the synagogue. He went to a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Next door neighbor to the synagogue, he went over there and had meetings there because they were mad at him in the synagogue. But look at verse 8. Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house. This is like the jailer in Philippi. Not just the guy gets saved, but everybody in his family believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. He was the chief ruler of the synagogue that just threw Paul out. Not he, but the synagogue threw him out, wouldn't have him. And he went. Now get, the Jews get themselves a new chief ruler because he, the new one raises some more trouble in a bit. But this is the encouraging word next. There's not often, in Paul's life there are several times when he actually hears from the Lord Jesus. And this is one of them. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. Isn't that good? Speak and hold, don't hold your, hold your peace. Well, I'm supposed to have peace. No, just let it loose. <laughs> let it loose. Speak. I am with thee. No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. I know that happened to you over there in Asia Minor, but not here. I have much people in this city. Jesus gave him a promise, said, 
we got work to do in this city. You keep on persuading. And so after the vision from the Lord, he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then there's a little bit of history mentioned here. Gallio was the deputy of Achaia. He's the Roman that's over the whole of southern Greece, from Macedonia on down. He's the Roman deputy. That's the, the title behind the word deputy is, is historically correct. I want to peek at it just for a second. Click on the verse, go to the plus, and then you can see deputy. We're going to put the dictionary back down here. The dictionary back down here, and then find it. Deputy was G445, and there it is. <coughs> Excuse me. Anthupatuo. Anthupatuo. And that says it doesn't occur in the King James Bible. That's really weird. Anthupatuo. I have no idea what that means. Let's see what. We'll just look in the dictionary part first. Anthupatuo means to act as proconsul. That was the Roman title for that office. I do not have a clue why it says the word not in the Bible. <laughs> there it is in front of us. Hmm. Let's peek. We can peek at one more thing here. This is not going to do you much good. It's a Greek text. But verse 12 in the Greek New Testament with those words, there's the word anthropatuantas, number 445. I don't know why it says it's not there, because there it is. All right, let's get out of that. So that was an accurate thing, though. It used to be that critics of the Bible said, there's all kinds of language in there that's just not right. They don't know what the Romans were doing in that part of the world at that time. But it was the right word. It says, during this year and a half, Paul's in Achaia, in, in uh, Corinth, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul. The Jews weren't satisfied with just getting them out of the synagogue and next door in the Crispus' house. They just raise up a riot and bring him to the judgment seat. This fellow, there's the accusation, this thing, you know, fellows in italics, it was really a rude thing. This thing persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And Paul was about to open his mouth, because that is what Paul did when he had an opportunity, he opened his mouth. But the judge, Gallio, the, the proconsul, said to the Jews, oh, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O oh, you Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. It's almost like he'd read what Pontius Pilate did with Jesus. He, he said, you, you deal with it. <laughs> but in this case, he didn't give in to their will. He drave the accusers, he drave them from the judgment seat. He didn't get them a cab, he hit them with sticks to drive them away. <laughs> He said, Bailiff, get him out of my courtroom. And then in verse 17, the Gentiles took the new chief ruler of the synagogue, the leader of the riot against Paul, Sosthenes, the Greeks, the Gentiles, right there in front of Gallio, they beat him before the judgment seat. And it says, Gallio cared for none of these things. He said, you got what you deserved. <laughs> so, there's the introduction to Paul being in Corinth and the work that he had there, and it's interesting to look at that. 
looking back at the notes, he went on, after he was in Corinth, he went on to Ephesus after a year and a half or more. And his coming to them in sorrow before this was by way of the letter, the first Corinthians letter. Let's go back to where we started here. I don't want to come to you in heaviness again. He had written them this letter. This new letter, 2 Corinthians, would not be of the same character, making them sorry. He's not going to do that. Lupeo. Heaviness is lupe. Made sorry is a verb form. Heaviness is uh, an adjective, I think. Lupe is lupeo, made sorry, is the same word as in the form of a verb. Made sorry, heaviness. Have sorrow. So he's using these words that we don't see are the same in English, but they are lupeo, to distress. Then they made Paul glad. They made Paul glad. Who is he then that maketh me glad? He's talking to the Corinthians about them and how they have made him glad. Because they have, he's heard that they've responded well to them. They made Paul glad. To put him in a good frame of mind, to gladden, to make joyful. He says, I wrote this same unto you lest when I come, came. He says, I wrote that first letter to you because I didn't want to be heavy handed when I'm actually there with you. When I came, I should have sorrow of them of whom I ought to rejoice. This is having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. He wanted, when he came again physically, you should be turning the page in the notes, (laughs) to rejoice in their obedience, not to have more correcting to do. And then in verse 4 he says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you, with many tears, writing the first letter, tore Paul up. It was a painful, hard duty. He says, I, those spots on the page, that's my tears. You know. He says, not that you should be grieved. That's not why I wrote. But that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. If you've been a parent, you know there's times when you have to correct your children. And sometimes they don't get it. They don't get that you must do what you're doing, even though it hurts. And that's the way Paul felt about the Corinthians here. You need to know, I did this this letter of discipline, this 1 Corinthians that I wrote, so that you'll know the love that I have, the more abundantly unto you. I like these words. Sometimes I spend more time with words than perhaps I should, but when we look at the, the amazing word here in verse 4, he talks about the love which I have more abundantly to you. We had this word in chapter 1 as well. More abundantly, it is perisateros. Perisateros. And it means more super abundantly. It is a powerful word that's made more powerful. <laughs> it's just uh, more super abundantly. Wow. He <laughs> didn't say most super abundantly, but he did say more super abundantly. It's just a strong, strong word. I like that. All right, we go on now to the, the next section in the reading here, chapter 2, verse 5. 
he says, now let's say, if any have caused grief, he's not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was afflicted of many. So contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you, you would confirm your love toward him. I think he's got in mind that fellow that he wrote to them about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the fellow that was blatantly and publicly involved in sexual matters with his father's wife. Not his own mother, I don't think, but his father's wife, his stepmother. In chapter, we'll go back and look at this. This page 1215 in 1 Corinthians. It's reported commonly that there's fornication among you, such fornications not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up. You're proud and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So um, in, in the letter in chapter 5, he, I have got these bullet points here, like eight different things he told them they needed to do. They needed to mourn. In verse 2 it says, he should be taken away from among you. In verse 5 he says, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is a good thing to do. In verse 7 he says, purge out therefore the old leaven. In verse 9 he says, I wrote to you an epistle not to company with fornicators. Don't be around them, not, not to keep company. Verse 11 says, I've written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous. Don't raise your hand here. Or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. That's not the only sin. He says, I told you don't have fellowship with believers who are involved in this kind of sin that hurts other people. Fornicator, covetous, idolater, railer, drunker, just sinners. And he has just said, I don't mean you've got to stay away from all the people like that, because then you'd have to just go up on a mountaintop and not see anybody. Verse 10, he says, you don't need to go out of the world, but it's the ones that are brothers. If they're involved in these sins, you, you just don't eat with them. Don't even eat with them. In verse 13, he says, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He's giving strong instructions to them. But we go back to chapter 2 where we were just reading, and he says, now, uh, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Now you need to forgive. Forgive him, verse 7. And comfort him, verse 7. And confirm your love toward him, in verse 8. And in my notes say, Paul recognized that their obedience to his former command in this case would be a hard thing for them. It would be a test. Verses 9 through 11 there's another side to why he gave them this harsh command to deal with the sinners among them. He said, to this end also did I write. 
There was another purpose, not just fix the guy. But I also wrote those harsh things to you that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. So we'll read verse 10 and 11. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. If I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should give an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul recognized that their obedience to his former command would be a hard thing for them. It would be a test. And I looked up this word proof here in verse 9. It's an interesting word. The proof of you, the dokime. The dokime. It's a test. It shows trust, trustiness. It's a test. It shows trustiness. And in the other dictionary, Thayer mentions that it's a word that's often used about the testing of a coin and the metal that's in it. A specimen of tried worth. Actually, it was the root word under this word that was like that. Go back here, and this says it came from 1384, which is just over here, two words further down. Dokimas, proved acceptable, approved, current after assailed. You know, they would take ores of silver or gold or whatever out to the assayer's office to see what quality of ore that they had, and it's in the Thayer's Dictionary here on this word, this root word, dokimas, that says accepted, particularly of coins and money. So Paul said, I'm going to know the proof of you. I want to know what you're like through and through. How, how pure are you? I want to know the proof of you, whether you'll be obedient in all things. So when you forgive, I forgive. If I forgave, I did it for Christ in the person of Christ, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices and we don't want to give him an advantage over us. There's one other place this word dokime is used, but with an A in the front of it, which negates it, and that's in 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, lest I would be a castaway. It doesn't mean he'd lose his salvation. It means he would be disapproved. He would not be rewardable because he ran outside the lines, if you'll take the Olympic race as the example there. So that's the same word with the negative on the front of it. And in the person of Christ is, is an interesting... The in the person of is kind of in front of the face of. In the person of, it's, it's the word for face there, prosopon, in front of the human. It's, it's less saying, I'm doing this as though I were Christ, as much as saying, I'm doing this in the full view of Christ, in the presence of Christ, in the face of Christ. It's kind of neat. In front of Christ's face, the head of the church knows what we are doing and then this, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, we're not ignorant of his devices. There is an enemy, there is an adversary, and we, when we fail to forgive, when we don't forgive as Christ forgave us, Satan gets a foothold. 
Satan gets an advantage, and we don't want to give him an advantage. We are not ignorant of his devices. That ignorant word is agnio. And the devices word is noema. I've printed them out in the notes there. They're words which are both in sound and in the Greek root word are connected. Ignorant and devices. We're not ignorant of his things that he's thinking through here. They both have to do with the mind. We are not without knowledge of his knowing schemes. And we're going to go a little further here. Second Corinthians verse 12 through uh, 13, just two more verses. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me in the Lord, Troas was that place I said was near the ancient city of Troy where Paul had the vision in the night of the man of Macedonia to say to come over and help us. He's referring back to when he first left Asia, they called it, to come over to first Macedonia and then Greece. He says, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me of the Lord, he says, yeah, the door was up toward Philippi. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. Perhaps he's referring to another time he's visited I think this indicates he had expected to meet Titus in Troas on this trip where he's left the Corinthians and now he's communicating with them again. I think he expected Titus to give him a report back from Corinth. And when he got to Troas, he was unsettled because Titus wasn't there yet. And so he's still written the letter to the Corinthians and doesn't know how they've responded to it. He doesn't know yet. And so he says, I had no rest in my spirit because I had found not Titus, my brother. So I didn't stay in Troas, even though there's an open door there for me for the gospel. I took my leave of them, and I went on over to Macedonia again. I'm on my way back down. He says, now I'm in Ephesus. I went thence into Macedonia. The notes say Paul expected to meet Titus at Troas to receive tidings as to the effect of his first epistle on the Corinthian church. But disappointed in his expectation there, he passed on to Macedonia where he finally did catch up with Titus. And then verses, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, later in the letter, we'll go over there, page 1235 if you want to run over there. Uh, chapter 7, did I put that in there? There it is. Chapter 7, verse 5, when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side, without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus showed up, yay, not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. Paul says, when I got over to Macedonia, Titus caught up with us, and yea, that was good, but especially because he told us how you were doing in Corinth, how you had responded to my first letter. <clears throat> I like this in verse 6. God that comforteth those that are cast down. When you're looking for one of the descriptive names of God, this is a good one to keep in mind. He is God that comforteth 
those that are cast down. I rejoiced the more, he said at the end of verse 7, so that I rejoiced the more. Titus told me how well you responded to me. Back in verse 5, he said, the door was open. The door was opened unto me of the Lord. Where did it go? Lost my place. Oh, it was back in chapter 2. We need to go back to chapter 2. We can push the little back button here. It'll be so fun. It'll be there. There it is. I came to Troas. A door was opened to me in the Lord. He had great opportunity in Troas, but because he didn't find Titus and so didn't hear how the Corinthians had responded to his first letter, he left the opportunity and he went on, he went on to Macedonia. Now, verses 14 through 17 are just an outburst. <laughs> He's just been talking so far, but he just can't contain. The, the note underneath the quote of the passage says, sudden outburst of gratitude in contrast to the previous dejection in Troas. Surely a new paragraph should begin here. In point of fact, Paul makes a long digression from here all the way to chapter 6, verse 10, on the subject of the glory of the Christian ministry. That's a quotation from the scholar and commentator A.T. Robertson. Let me read the passage. He says, is the beginning of this outburst of gratitude. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one were the savor of death unto death, to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God. In the sight of God speak we in Christ. And I think Robertson is right. This is just the beginning of a chunk of verses that go all the way to chapter 6, but we will see the end of the chapter here, and so we'll probably cut it off here today. We're running to that part of time. <sighs> Triumph in Christ. When a Roman general returns successfully to Rome from having waged war in some other part of the world, the emperor would occasionally award him a triumph, and he would lead all of the spoils of his victory through the streets of Rome, and it was, we'd call it a ticker tape parade. People were throwing flowers and bringing money and food and goodies. But the ones that followed the victorious general generally were unwilling slaves. They were captives from the war. But this uses that word triumph and says we're being led in triumph in Christ. And we're going willingly. He's, he's paid our price. He's made our, our way and he's going to lead us in triumph and use us because it says in the end of the verse, he makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. You know the word savor. That's a, either a good taste or a good smell or both. The savor of his knowledge and he's making it known by us in every place. What a great thing that is. The triumphant general often was greeted with clouds of perfume, it says. He is said, going to another commentator, he is said to make it manifest by us 
the ministers of the gospel who openly, boldly, and faithfully preach it, and by manifestation of the truth spread the savor of it and that in every place where they come, their commission being large to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then we close with those passages that I've been liking to close with, only I missed it there. In chapter uh, 5 of 2 Corinthians, this is page 1233, verse 19 says, here's the way it is. I'm going to explain this to you. To wit, to wit, let me help you understand. To wit, God was in Christ. It's the first point of a very brief gospel presentation. Who was he? God himself in the person of Christ. God became a man, reconciling the world unto himself. There was a barrier between God and man called sin. He took it out of the way, reconciled the world unto himself. Very specifically, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Because Christ died for my sins. Christ paid for the sins of the dying thief who believed in him. He also paid for the sins of the dying thief who did not believe in him. He paid for the sins of all mankind. All sin is paid for as far as God's concerned. He has reconciled the world unto himself. But the end of the sentence is he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. There has to be a speaking to lost people of this truth of what God has done And so in verse 21, here's the explanation. He made him, the one who knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All sins are paid for, but not everybody goes to heaven because not everybody has believed in Jesus and not until you receive the righteousness of God put to your account by believing in Jesus are you given in him the righteousness of God And then verse 20, here we are. The savers made manifest by us in every place. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. If you're listening here in the auditorium or out online, God is begging you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. If he were here, this is what he would say. Be ye reconciled to God. The verse before says he's reconciled the world unto himself, but you have to believe in Jesus Your sins are paid for, but to be made the righteousness of God, you have to be in him, and you can't get in him without believing in him. God was in Christ. He did the work on the cross, and we pray you right now, I'm truly saying this to you if you're listening, we pray you in Christ said, be ye reconciled to God. The only condition is to believe in Jesus. The promise to the ones who believe in Jesus is everlasting life, the gift of his righteousness put to your account. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we come again to the end of a Sunday school lesson, we pray that it won't just be a lesson that we say, oh, that was okay, or that was good, or boy, I wish you'd get over that, but a lesson where we are all, each one of us, affected by it, to hear and hear more clearly each time we hear it, the gospel message, and why to present it, and how to present it, and for lost people to present it winsomely so that they would know God loves them and wants them to be close to his side. Again, he did everything he could to take away that was between them and says, be you reconciled to God, believe in Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life. Father, help each one 
to understand, to know. It's no more conditioned to it than that, to believe in Jesus. And we ask this in his name.